Hi everyone and welcome back to another instalment of the podcast that thinks it's perfectly normal to use an ironing board for a table. <laughs> it's Parliamental with me, Jerry Maguire, and my co-host, Anne McLaughlin MP. Hello there. How are you, Anne? I'm good, how are you? I am great. It's early on a Sunday morning and we're so ready for this. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Um, how was your Burns night? Did you do anything special for it? Oh, I did a couple of things. I went to uh, Wallacewell Primary in Rob Royston and the Primary Sevens fed us and entertained us. It was absolutely brilliant, actually. Um, and I also went to an SNP Burns night um, and it was just sensational. It was organised by Ian Robertson, the actor, the film actor. Um, and it was just the best Burns night I've ever been to in my life. Oh, until I went to Wallacewell Primary, obviously. <laughs> so what did they do at the Burns night? What was the SNP thing? Was there was there singing? Was there dancing? Oh, it was amazing. Well, Ian Robertson, there were so many people. I mean, people like Dave Anderson was doing the thing bit where you stab the haggis mm-hmm. I forget what you call it um, Libby MacArthur was doing the auction that was very funny until they made me buy something uh, Ian Robertson as I say organised it but he did Tam he did the best Tam I have ever seen in my entire life and I know I will never see a better one and everyone agreed I mean he's an actor but I hadn't realised quite how charismatic he was and he acted that poem out Uh and we were all on the edge of our seats he he was i can't put into words how fantastic he was and then there were amazing singers i tweeted about it at the time so there were and and i mean tom yuri who i absolutely love he played a big bob in river city but you know he's a musician to trade and um and i love i love him and i love his singing but there were so many other fantastic artists i can't name them all or it would take up the whole podcast Mm -hmm. it was the best burns night i've ever been to in my entire life sounds like a real contrast from mine mine wasn't uh wasn't sad or anything, but it was a kind of quick Burns night, and I basically had the uh, haggis toasties. <laughs> um, but I did put whiskey in it, and I drank whiskey along with it. And then after it, I really I had a bit of tablet, and I kind of felt like I should have been wearing a kilt that night. Like it was really weird how I didn't, I didn't realize how Scottish it had become. But there was like two types of whiskey, haggis. Okay, the toasty bit wasn't very Scottish, um, and tablet. So yeah. Well, I couldn't do the whiskey bit um, because I'm doing triathlon. I'm not drinking triathlon in January. So mm-hmm. if anybody wants to, I think it's probably going to be too late by the time the podcast goes out for anyone to give me any money. But I want you to know what a saint I am, drinking no alcohol for all of January. So does that mean since tomorrow's February, are you just going to immediately, you know, just kind of get hit a can of tenants, or no. are you? No, because I actually started it a week late. It's just the fundraising bit of it Don't ends uh, on the 31st mm-hmm. of January, mm-hmm. but I started it a week late, so to be fair, I think I need to keep it going for another week. Yeah, I think that's probably, if, if people are giving you money, and I think you need to do the full 28 days, the full, <laughs> the full 21 days of dry 21 onion. days, it's the full, 31 days. The full days. 13 days of dry <laughs> onion. Um, you also had a great week, I think, you were talking about in the last podcast, and I've seen some photographs that you saw Idris Elba in the flesh. <gasps> oh. <laughs> so, Idris Elba's flesh, um, how's that? Oh, pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I didn't get anywhere near him and at the end of it actually he gave a really really good speech and he was saying he was saying a couple of things that I I was interested in well I mean I was interested in what he was there for um, which was to talk about the lack of uh, diversity in film and television so so you know if you're uh, black or disabled um, you know do you or, or transgender somebody mentioned that on Twitter how do you see your role models how do you see yourself reflected in today's television and film so it was all about that and it was really interesting 
Um, but he was saying, you know, that he was nervous, and I actually think he was, but he certainly—I don't think he was just saying that to yeah, endear of, himself to the crowd. Yeah, I don't think he was, but he—he he, his style in speech making is really, really good. His—he's lovely. I mean, he—he he was very relaxed and very um, engaging, and uh, at the end they were taken photographs but it was photographs of everybody who was in the meeting and there were like a couple of hundred um with him and I thought oh do you know what I'm not going to get a photo yeah. with him myself mm-hmm. and off I went to my next meeting only to discover that Martin Doherty MP's staff all had individual photos taken with what? him and as did Stuart Macdonald MP's staff uh, as they never tired of showing me later yeah they just grabbed him that's right now but yeah, it's, it sounds like he gave an interesting talk about yeah representation of of uh, people from different backgrounds and and TV and stuff. So totally. Oh, but the one the the, the thing that I was finding really interesting that he was saying that was so, sort of off top, topic was he was saying as a boy, he used to see the Houses of Parliament and never he never dreamt he would be in there at any point, and as a man he would walk past and he never thought he would find himself in there. And I thought, wow, you know that's wrong. That's wrong that somebody feels that it's such a big deal to be in there. You know, that tells you something about British politics that ordinary mm-hmm. people think it's a dream come true almost. I yeah. mean, he wasn't saying that, but as a child, he wouldn't have dreamt that he would be able to go in there. Mm-hmm. And, and again, as an adult, and I don't like that. That really annoys me. It's really he te- didn't annoy me. That annoyed yeah. me. It's really telling. Like, when you're a kid, you, you dream of being a spaceman and stuff like that. And as you get older, Aye. you realise that you need to have like perfect vision so you can't Aye. do that or you get... <laughs> Or you, you're, you're terrible at um, high G, like I am, found out. So all hygiene. that stuff. High G. High oh, G, right. like all high gravity stuff. I oh, did, you're not I, terrible at high G. No, no, I'm, I'm great at high G. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm speaking span. Um, <laughs> but but as a kid, to think that that's beyond you to, to go in there, that's, but you know, know. But before you've even got any exam results, to think that that's not for but you. Even, but even he didn't think he would ever actually be inside it. Not mm. even about getting elected mm-hmm. to it, just being inside mm-hmm. it. That that's really quite mm-hmm. sad. That that must reflect what a lot of people think. Yeah, it shows that even if you've got equalities legislation and maybe things are in place that technically there shouldn't be any discrimination, that people still believe or the mm-hmm. message it's given out to people and kids mm-hmm. is that you're not welcome here or this isn't mm-hmm. for you, and that happens across so many different groups, doesn't it? But see, to be honest, I don't think it it was even about him being from an ethnic minority background. I think it was probably because I have heard other people saying that. I was surprised to hear him saying it, but I have heard other people saying it and I think it is just a thing that's the British establishment and we're not part of it because we're maybe even just from a working class background Mm -hmm. is a good reason for people to think that they could never be in there why shouldn't they it's their parliament Mm Talking about the Parliament, um, something a story came out this week about Westminster's repair bill. Now, I want to parallel this. The Scottish Parliament apparently cost four hundred million pounds, and it was seen as a bit of a farce. You know, mm-hmm. A huge weight, a huge cast. I think the initial quote was like forty million, mm-hmm. and the estimated repair bill for the Palace of Westminster has been released, and it's six billion pounds. Yeah, that's a scary amount of money. Is, isn't yeah. it? What, do you think we in Scotland should be paying for that? Is that for a loaded question? Do I? Uh, do I what? That's what they used to say. In Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Do I what? Uh, before you learn to swear. Uh, no, I don't. Um, I don't think people realise that you know the Scottish Parliament. That was a farce. The whole building project. 
because and and thankfully we were not in charge at the time therefore we can <laughs> absolve ourselves of all responsibility in fact i think it was snp msps who really took up the the campaign to get it resolved because they accepted a an estimation that was way lower than it was ever going to be and it got completely out of control but guess who paid for that scotland scottish taxpayers alone right wembley got done up who paid for that British taxpayers, so Scotland paid a share of that. I um, think there's a really simple way to get out of paying in, into this six billion, and that is just to not be part of it anymore. That is just for us to be independent. And I think that's just one of the things that's going to make people who maybe voted no last time or didn't vote, it's going to make them think, do you know what, see next time, I'm going to take the opportunity. Because the point is, they keep cutting services that people with the least and money and the least power in our country need. They cut their services because they can't afford them. But we can find money. We can find money to go and bomb Syria. We can find money to replace nuclear weapons that we're never going to use. And we can find money, that amount of money, £6 billion, to, to do up Westminster. It's just obscene. Yeah, and it's it's a beautiful building, but it's not fit for purpose. I mean, being in the Scottish Parliament, you can see for all its kind of architectural wackiness, that it's built for function, you know, that it's very modern and, and you can see a government functioning in it. But Westminster's going to be, you're going to be turning up an old museum. And it's even even after six billion, it's not going to be really suitable. It'll just be a nicer old building that's not falling apart anymore. Yeah, I think they should just, um, you know, just start again. But I mean, it, it, you would obviously want to preserve it because mm -hmm. it is such a beautiful building and it is such a nice museum. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I understand, I get why people get attached to it and everything. I'm not obviously going to get attached to it but I can see why other people get attached to it but you know it's just like everything else uh, that they keep telling us we can't afford we can't afford it and you know that 6 billion the number that's been released won't be the 6 billion end cost no it won't no it'll be, it'll be twice that once you're committed you need to fix it in the past fortnight uh, the psychoactive substances bill kind of finally made it through parliament and you did the summing up, I think, did you, Anne, for the SNP? Uh, no, I led uh, for the SNP on the day. So um, I, uh, what did I do? I'm trying to think what the wording is. I did the amendments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, I started off by saying, I think I have to beg to move the amendments. And I said to the speaker, do I beg? And somebody <laughs> on the Tory bench said, no, you just speak to the amendments. And I said, that's good, I don't like begging. Yeah. So is that uh, the protocol then? Like begging's in there somewhere? Yeah. At some point you'll have to beg for something. At you some don't know what stage it is. you do yeah. beg to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, I had it wrong, I'd forgotten to check beforehand But yeah, of course none of our amendments were taken The, the things that I really am concerned about I understand you have to give a message and, and, and calling things legal highs Is telling people that it's, it's legal Therefore, mm -hmm. oh, it must be safe So I think it is important to get a message to people that I mean, I don't know if everybody knows what these so-called legal highs These new psychoactive substances are But basically... They are meant to replicate the effects of other drugs, like cocaine. Nobody thinks cocaine is safe. Um, and I do get all these arguments. I really do get all the arguments about alcohol isn't safe either. And, you know, but you can't 
you don't know what's in one of these new psychoactive substances, whereas you do know yeah. what's in the alcohol. Yeah. You can abuse it or you can mm-hmm. use it. That's it, I suppose. I mean, people talk about cocaine and, and you know, it's been a, a class A drug, I think it is, so it's quite a dangerous drug. But at least I suppose cocaine is, is a known quantity in some senses. The thing that's meant to mimic cocaine, who knows what the hell's yeah. in that. So at least we, you can quantify even the... Even the illegal drugs so we can quantify them mm. but in some ways the illegal ones are just so unknown that you know you could get a horrible batch of something and nobody knows what's happening and you get deaths from it so yeah. it's pretty grim so is that your biggest concern then about the psychoactive substances no bill? i've got i mean i'll tell you the amendments we put forward a number of amendments but the ones that i was really concerned about the the first one and the most significant one for me personally was that throughout the different stages of this bill, and the Scottish government did work with the British government on this, throughout the different stages, there was general agreement that we were moving on from the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act in that we were not seeking to criminalise the user. Okay, So if somebody was in possession of a new psychoactive substance or somebody bought a new psychoactive substance for personal use, they were not going to be criminalised for that. And I think that's absolutely right because a lot of, particularly a lot of young people, we all do daft things, you know, but, you know, why they're taking enough of a risk, obviously without realising, taking enough of a risk on their health, but should they come out of it all right, you know, for them to get a criminal record and then what does that do to their job opportunities? So the agreement was that they wouldn't criminalise the user. And during the first stage of the debate, when it came to the first stage in the House of Commons, I had raised the fact that the, the in the bill it said that if you bought from the internet, you would be criminalised. And the minister said, no, no, I'd got that wrong. Then he apologised, said I'd got it right, but they would sort it out at committee stage. I couldn't be on that committee. I was on another committee at the time. And at committee stage, they didn't iron it out. So we put forward an amendment to say that buying from the internet would not criminalise you. And the point I was making was, if you've got... I gave the example, a brother and sister both want to try the same new psychoactive substance. Both do go and try it, right? Both are okay, you know, it doesn't impact on their health, thankfully. Obviously, we don't want them to do it in the first place, obviously, but they do it, right? One of them orders it over the internet and the other one says, oh no, I'm all right going down that dark alley, meeting that drug dealer um, on my own late at night, you know, because that's how it's going to be done now because obviously the head shops will be closed. Now, who do you think is going to be most likely to be gung-ho enough to go down the dark alley and meet um, a a drug dealer? It's mostly going to be boys, I would say. And so I think there is a gender thing there. I think the girl, the sister, is more likely to order it over the internet. But in doing so, the brother is not a criminal, does not face getting a criminal conviction, but the sister does. Um, And take away the gender, the point is that they're both doing the same thing. It's just where they purchase it that seems to make the difference. And unfortunately, they weren't listening. So there's that. There's also the fact that prisoners, people who are in prison, if they use it, they are committing a criminal offence, whereas if you're on the outside, you're not. And the reason I have a massive issue with that, apart from the general civil liberties argument, is because somebody... Uh, in, in prisons at the moment, there, there is big business, new psychoactive substances. And when a new batch comes in, they get these people, uh, guinea pig types. It's vulnerable prisoners 
who are afraid to say no and they are used as testing ground for the new batch so they're given it and told to use it and there's a lot of that goes on and let's not pretend that we can guarantee the safety of every single prisoner so that person would be criminalised and also the issue of paupers which nobody thinks are dangerous they shouldn't be coming into this the government said they are going to consider a, a, you know they're going to review it in the summer but right now Poppers, which is widespread to use poppers in, uh, in the gay community, right now it's going to be criminal. In July it might not be criminal anymore. It's daft. But anyway, these were the main three things that we were pushing and um, of course none of it got through. By criminalising one path and not the other, you incentivise people to buy it in the most dangerous way. Yeah. And I think you know the bill, kinda, or what you've been talking about, recognises the fact that this is going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. So let's not criminalise certain behaviours, but then let's not incentivise the most dangerous way of doing it. I know. And, and I mean, I think the response from the minister on committee, I was reading back what he said on committee, I think his response was something like, if they buy from the internet, they might be buying to supply, and how can we tell if it's for personal use or not? And he gave the example of people who drive over to Cali or used to drive over to Cali, fill their vans with cigarettes and then claim that it's for personal use. But the point I would make, and I never got the chance to do this because it all overran, so I never got the opportunity to really say what I wanted to say. The point I would make is that with every suspected crime, people have got an excuse or a reason or they've got something, some mitigating circumstances. And prosecutors, the police, juries, all have to make a decision on whether they believe it or not. If we were to say, well, you know, we don't know, it's difficult to prove... Apply that to every other crime and, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So, I basically, none of it made sense and I wasn't very happy, but there you go. So what other bills do you think you'll be involved in? I think that was the first one you were in, in committee stage and seen that kind of machine up close. Have you got any other ones coming up that you'll be involved in? Actually, the first one uh, was the immigration bill. Uh, and I was on the committee for that and that was quite a long committee. But you're right in saying that this one, it was the first one that I was kind of leading for the party throughout the process Um, and it was fascinating to see the process it's a bit shambolic a bit pantomime like at times Um, and uh, yeah I don't know it just depends what the party gives me read over the past week or two that a private firm contracted by the Home Office, not the Home Office directly, but the firm contracted them, are requiring asylum seekers to wear red armbands to identify them at all times that's pretty grim isn't it? Pretty grim as grim as the uh, housing providers that painted the doors of asylum seekers red to identify them. It's awful. You know what, though? I mean, the Home Office, both of the, these, I think, merited an urgent question in Parliament. So, And the Home Office say, oh, yeah, 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 we'll sort that out. But these companies wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for the attitude of the Home Office. The Home Office positively encourages, with their rhetoric, with their laws, their ever-changing laws positively encourages that kind of a sort of apartheid if you like um and you know i've long said that what they need in the home office is a real culture change from within they need to not be looking at asylum seekers as people trying to diddle us they need to be looking at them in a supportive way and finding out how best we can support these individuals whether they stay here long term or not how best we support them um, and it's it's not it's not the attitude of the Home Office. The attitude of the Home Office is that they're almost they're almost criminals, and we need to prove that they're criminals. Um, so, 
yeah, it follows that you, the companies that are contracted by the Home Office are not going to think that there's any obligation on them to treat asylum seekers as as human beings. When, when, when organisations subcontract care, if you like, in mm. terms of prison or whatever, it does encourage a wee bit of dehumanisation because it's definitely, at that point, about numbers. Yeah. So in an environment where those people are already kind of dehumanised, mm. then that's just going to make it even worse. I think it's interesting, um, in, in Germany, you know, they've got a past that's very parallel to this and mm. they have been seen as kind of, although although they've had issues internally with people's opinions, but the government's definitely yeah. sort of been much more open. Totally. So they're, I think they're aware of the dangers that this mm. type of language can have. Yeah. Whereas we, we feel, we, you know, it's, it's Britain. You know, mm. we're better than this. We're, we're good people. You know, this, yeah. is, this is just what people deserve. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we are very, this is where people think that, that it's, it's not possible, that mm. we could have a really grim human rights situation because mm. we're not like that and therefore it follows everything we do is good. We're not like that, so we don't need the Human Rights Act to make us uh, acknowledge people's human rights and yes, and we can... But obviously we are like that or some of us are like that. Um, and yes, good that it was seen as a bit of a... a I won't say a national outrage because, uh, okay, a UK-wide outrage, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good, but it should never have happened in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, David Cameron said, uh, you know, uh, there's a bunch of migrants was the, was the term that he used. And I think whether it was calculated or not, there's been a lot of debate about whether he threw that in there to sort of create a bit of noise. Um, the fact that he felt comfortable throwing mm. out a bunch of migrants, calculated or not, shows the environment, I think, yeah. in which we're living at the minute. And that it's quite a dangerous environment for mm. people who are not white, didn't grow up here or whatever. Yeah. It's a very it's a very slippy slope, I think, at the minute. Using that term um, just really reveals his attitude towards migrants, a bunch of migrants, unbelievable. And the fact that it was seen as a criticism to Jeremy Corbyn, that mm. he, he dared talk to the, this bunch of migrants. I know. incredible. Since we last spoke, um, you had a bit of a, a chat about Donald Trump, and <laughs> I believe you received a lot of emails about it. Now... Mm. Who did you get these emails from and why did you get them? Well, I got hundreds of tweets, dozens of emails and dozens of Facebook messages. Um, Now, I didn't read the tweets. Twitter's a very different atmosphere to Facebook. Um, I read the first three of the deluge and then somebody in my office took on my Twitter account to get rid of them because uh, they were personal, they were nasty and they were abusive. And I think if you allow that to seep into your consciousness. Um, I think for me, the thing is not what they were saying. You know, I mean, for, I'll just give you the the least worst example was somebody was saying, you know, the state of your hair, you're a mess, right? Well, I knew my hair needed cut. So that was just a fact, right? Not a very nice thing to say, but just a fact. The thing that bothered me was knowing that there are people out there that are that nasty and that petty. And I think you try and pretend to yourself that everybody's good and everybody's well-meaning. So I had to not read the tweets. And I know that there was a well-known, I don't know how to describe her, but a well-known person had said something. I still don't know what she said. Uh, And I don't want to know. And um, I don't care what she said. I'm not interested in, in her opinions. But I know there were hundreds and hundreds of tweets on a similar vein and they were really nasty and horrible. And it was because I had said that Donald... Well, no, 
Yeah. I had not called for Donald Trump to be banned. You hadn't said a huge amount about Donald Trump, really. No. And, and not that anyone else has not said about Donald Trump. Well, I know. I mean, in that debate, there were Tories calling him a buffoon. I never caught... I never... I don't... I mean, I tend not to say horrible personal things about people. Um, I... And, and yes, in answer to your question, most of the messages I got came from the States. Um, the ones on Twitter, uh, there were some, of course, that were nice, apparently. But the ones on Twitter were venomous, nasty, poisonous. Facebook's a different atmosphere, so it was angry, but not that personalised. The emails, I got quite a few horrible personal emails. Um, so on uh, Facebook, I was getting things like, who the hell do you think you are? How dare you say Donald Trump should be banned? And one or two of them, I did reply and say, learn to read. I didn't say that. Because actually what I said was, you know, the SNP doesn't have a policy on Donald Trump. And I was summing up for the SNP. What I said was I wouldn't call for him necessarily to be banned. I would call for everyone to be treated equally. And if other people were being banned for saying similar things, then fine. But I wasn't necessarily calling for him to be banned. But I wasn't saying uh, good things about him because you were saying earlier about, you know, what happened in pre-war Europe when Jews were registered and uh, he was calling for Muslims to be registered and tracked. I mean, what's the difference? Um, but yeah, I got some, oh, I got some, I got this guy on Facebook sent me a message um, and he, his uh, profile picture is an American flag with a big gun behind it. <laughs> and I just thought, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. It was horrible to think. Anyway, no, what I was going to tell you is I c couldn't understand how all these Americans knew about it. And um, then the one that I said to him, learn to read, he said, I didn't read it. I saw you on CNN. So I was on CNN, and that is why I got so many responses from the States. <laughs> but I still didn't say ban him from the country. I said, I'm not calling for him to ban be banned from the country. And this guy said to me, well, I'm sorry, it must have been your accent. And he said, I'd like to open a dialogue with you, though. I think you're a beautiful person, and I'd like to open a dialogue. I think you guys should be sending more troops to help us when we're fighting these wars. After all, freedom begins with fighting. And I thought, I'm not sure a dialogue with this guy is going to go anywhere. No. But it, it goes to show, I think, that Americans can be are, are caricatured as being um, a bit daft. That's generally the caricature of an American person. But actually, they really are, you think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they can be really, they can be really kind of persuasive. I have to say though, and I've got to say this, I did get far fewer because that's what happens. Far fewer, but I did get a good uh, number of emails from Americans saying, "Sorry about all the abuse you're getting," or "Thank you very much for recognising." Because I said in my speech, you know, let's let's not pretend that the whole of America is behind this guy, and it must be really embarrassing for some of them. And um, and, and a number of them did say thanks very much for recognising that. And yes, you're right, it is embarrassing. This week you popped up in Evening Times in an article on the Community Empowerment Act. And yesterday you were speaking at community empowerment events. So, I mean, you've spoken about the Empowerment Act before, but what, what happened yesterday and what was what was the purpose of having that meeting yesterday? Right, so I had a meeting in Deniston, then another one in Royston. And um, I had Marco Biaggi, who's the Scottish Government Minister for uh, Local Government and for Community Empowerment. So he's the one that steered the Community Empowerment Bill through Parliament to become an Act of Parliament. Um, so he obviously knows the Bill, the Act, inside out. So what I've done was, in this constituency in Glasgow North East, as with other areas, but more so here, I think, um, you don't have to go very far to find an abandoned, neglected building or a piece of waste ground. And you also don't have to look very far to find a community that doesn't have 
the right facilities, that it needs to be a community. So I thought, well, this Community Empowerment Act, I'm really interested in it. How can, we, how can local people use it? Say, for instance, in Germiston, where every single person I spoke to said two things. One, we need a community centre and we don't have it. Two, we need play, a play area for the kids and we don't have it. What they do have, though, is an abandoned pub and a, an abandoned piece of ground. And, you know, I thought, how, how do you match these things up together? So I wanted to get to understand the act myself. And then I thought, actually, why don't I just get Marco to address a public meeting? So uh, it's fantastic. I mean, I was really buzzing yesterday. We had loads of people with lots of community activists, ordinary people. And quite often with these things, you get a lot of people, maybe maybe people in the SNP and the go because it's their SNP MP that's organised it. Um, but at this time, lots of strangers that I'd never met before, constituents, came along. People came from other constituencies as well, and I was really happy to welcome them. And and so they got to hear about it, and uh, we will be talking more about this in the coming weeks, I hope, because it is very exciting. And I could see people's... Now, there were some cynics at our uh, Royston meeting, cynics who have tried so hard for years to improve their community, but never had the power to do it. One of them in particular, I know he's a good pal of mine, and I can see his face changing from his usual cynical, uh, that's never going to work, to his eyes lighting up, then his whole face lighting up. And he said at the end, he spoke to Marco at the end, and he said the only bit that I didn't like of that whole thing today was when you said that you're standing down as an MSP. So, I mean, that's a good thing if that's so... There's so many ways we can take this forward. And he, he answered any questions that people had. And they came with specifics. You know, does this act mean that we could then, you know, take over a private building that's just been left abandoned and neglected? A really significant question that was asked. I need to just get this in. I know I'm talking a lot about this. But another, a really significant thing. Um, somebody said, what happens if... Um, we try to take on a building because it's been neglected and because it's a blight on the community... And the wealthy owner of it objects and takes us to court. And Marco said it wouldn't be you who'd be taken to court. You you ask the Scottish government if you can take it on, if the Scottish government ministers say yes, and the wealthy owner objects, it's the government they have to take to court. And that is brilliant. But there's so many other brilliant things about it. It was it was just fantastic. Last time in the show, Anne, you talked about hiring interns. Yep. And I've seen a lot of kind of social stuff. You're, you're driving it out and you said there maybe wasn't as good a response in some areas as others. So do you want to give us a wee pitch for it? Tell us what's happening with interns. Oh, we've had quite a good response since I started saying that. Um, no, we had a good response. Um, taking on to, well, I was calling them interns. I'm now calling them project workers because I think interns makes people think they have to be like 19 or 20. Uh, there is no age barrier on this. So I'm taking on two three-month project workers. One's going to be focusing on putting together a package, a, a strategy um, for how in the next four and a bit years I can improve employment in the area. How does an MP bring employment to the area? Uh, the other one's going to be focusing on what we've just been talking about, the Community Empowerment Act, and figuring out how what what support we can give to local communities. Obviously, we can't and shouldn't 
lead their bid to take on like a community centre or a shop or whatever. Um, but what support can we realistically give them? And I think we can give them quite a bit of support because the whole office is very motivated to do that. But this person will be working for three months to figure that out and meeting with lots and lots of different groups and finding out the areas where there is a need for it. Um, so I'll be paying the Scottish living wage and it'll be for three months. Uh, full time, we've got a bit of flexibility, so if somebody could only do three days a week, we could maybe take them on for a wee bit longer, we'll see. Um, I was just kind of concerned because a lot of the applications were coming from out with the constituency. I'm going to take on the best people for the job, wherever they live, but I wanted local people to know that I wanted them to apply. So we've had quite a few now. The closing date, I don't know how fast you'll get this podcast out, but the closing date is midnight on Tuesday the 2nd of February. Just needs to be a CV and a covering letter. Covering letter is quite important. Some people have sent CVs and they've not said anything, no letter. I want to know you know, what it is that you... Are passionate um, about what drives you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and um, uh, the team at the office are going to sift through and they're going to select people for interviews they're going to do the interviewing they're going to do the deciding and i think that's important that they do that because they're the ones that are going to be working with them they know what i'm looking for and they're going to find people for me so please 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 do apply um, i think it's really exciting opportunity i'm really excited about doing it and um and we'll make it the best experience we can so if you just check your facebook page for that or your twitter yep. account you'll see you're, you're, you're constantly putting up little graphics that have got details yep. of how to apply yep. and stuff so yeah check out Anne's facebook account for that and finally Anne, i think you've got another prime minister's question this week i do do you want, to, do you want to tell us what you're going to give us a wee sneak peek no nope. <gasps> what <laughs> i haven't decided yet i think i know what i'm going to go on um i try to think of what impacts most on my constituents um, I'm very interested in international stuff, so if I get another one in the near future, I probably will go on something international. I'm more likely to go on something that impacts on a lot of my constituents this time. But who knows? It depends. Things might change. I mean, this situation in the Yemen, where we appear to be helping the Saudis to, to uh, bomb Yemen, is outrageous. But I think more than likely I'll go on something that impacts on a lot of my constituents and I think I know what I'm going to do but all I know is I'm going to thoroughly enjoy it and I'm also quite certain I'm not going to get the answer that I want. So how do you, do you how do you like prepare for that then? Do you have to submit that in advance or, no. is, or is it just your name that's in and you get to you get to throw yeah. it out there? Yeah. As somebody actually said to me on Facebook that they thought the Prime Minister got all the questions in advance um, and that's because he's actually quite well prepared and he's he's a good performer um, I'm sorry, I just called David Cameron good. good He's not good. Yeah. The performance the perf is good. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. good at responding to these things. So what he'll say to me, whatever I say, he'll say that the Honourable Lady should be grateful that the Tory policies have meant that um, three more of her constituents are in employment or something. <laughs> and he names know? them. He names <laughs> the three folk. Yeah. <laughs> he kinda, that's the sort of response mm -hmm. that you always get from him. But um, yeah, I have to say, when I did it before, uh, I, it was a real buzz um, because... Uh, yeah, well, he's obviously, he's leading this government that are doing outrageous things to my constituents and being able to have a go at him is pretty enjoyable. On the other hand, it's pretty depressing as well because it ain't going to change Yeah, you'll, you'll probably get fobbed off, but at least yeah. it's on record and it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the busiest the Commons ever is, mm. is it, Prime Minister's questions? Yes. So it's like everyone gets to hear it. Yeah, and it's really important for my constituents, I think, that they know that I'm understanding what's happening to them and they know that I'm fighting for them 
even if I don't always win or at the moment don't ever win, I do with individual constituency mm -hmm. cases, but in that place, we never win anything. But the fact is, somebody cares and is fighting for you and representing you, and I think it's really important that you demonstrate that. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Parliamental. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at ParliamentalPod, on Facebook, search for Parliamental, and via email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. Anne and I will be back in a fortnight with another episode. So thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Bye.